Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words, so listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello and welcome to A Million Other Choices. I am your host, Kim. Here we go again with another story about a woman who tries to get out of an abusive marriage and ends up dead. My apologies if you are sick of them, but there's just too many and they are all important to me to tell. However, in this case, we get the murderer's take on the situation. And let me just say, but this poor boy is really just a sad victim in all of this, as I say sarcastically. He was also a member of a support group that I have a lot of thoughts on that I'm going to share with you. Today's story is another suggestion from Shauna. Now, she gave me quite a few suggestions of cases, and some of them I knew and some of them I didn't. And I also have to give a shout out to her friend Carrie, who listens as well and lets her know when I've covered one of her suggestions. So thank you to both of you for the great suggestions and for listening and reaching out. I'm always happy to take case suggestions because although there are far too many cases for me to get to in my lifetime, sorting through them all is a painful process. So when someone suggests a case, I can just add it to my list and then carry on. This is the murder of Candy Anton. Around four in the morning on January 2nd, 2001, a truck driver parked at a local truck stop in the city's southeast end of town next to the Corral Drive-In on 60th and 17th Avenue um, that has since closed down after an oil fire disaster. He looked over towards the theater and noticed a strange dark figure moving about in the woods by the big screen. He was immediately suspicious of the man, assuming that he was lurking about, waiting to break into one of the trucks. So when the man disappeared from his view, he wandered over to the area to take a little look-see at what he had been doing over under the trees of the drive-in. And there he made the rather horrific discovery 
of garbage bags with the naked body of a woman in her early 30s inside of them. Unfortunately, he hadn't gotten a very good look at the guy to identify him, but there were car tracks left behind in the snow. The woman had died of manual strangulation. Homicide detective George Brocks was assigned to the case. George was originally from Scotland and worked homicide in the late 1990s to about 2005 or so before retiring to become a private investigator. He died in May 2022 at 74. Nicknamed Mr. Homicide, he was a beloved detective in our city and solved 72 of his 79 cases that had been assigned to him. That morning, police received a call from a woman named Shirley Anton that wanted to report her daughter Candy missing. She hadn't reported for her job that morning at Alberta Roofing, where she had worked as a receptionist, and her manager had called her. She hadn't been able to reach Candy and was worried about her. Right around the same time when the officer was probably getting ready to tell her that she's just off on a bender and will show up soon enough, the woman's body that had been brought into the morgue was fingerprinted. Her prints came back to one Candy Anton, who had been in the system for a charge of domestic battery about three years before. Candy Leah Anton, who was named by her father Clifton because she was just the sweetest thing ever born, had been born in Medicine Hat and a free spirit who loved to sing and anything theater related. In her early 20s, she met a young man named Rocky Bonnet, and she was right away a smitten kitten. Rocky Bonnet and his mum Fran were interviewed for an episode of Homicide File, which I found on Visto. Uh, but I have no idea what that is. If it's a streaming service or a cable channel, I just happened across it on the internet when I was doing my research. And it's interesting because it's basically just Rocky and his mom saying what they have to say about Candy's murder. Rocky says that he was pretty much instantly in love with Candy from the minute he met her. She was a swimming instructor at the YMCA at the time. They both loved theater and both had been through some rough breakups in the past. Rocky had been divorced and was actually going to be heading to jail for a 37-day stint. He says that he had told Candy about it and she had been supportive. Now, apparently, he was caught having a sexual relationship with a former student of his when he was a teacher. The girl was underage. But, you know, that was really no big deal. It was consensual after all, and Rocky wasn't aware that there were actually laws controlling that kind of relationship with underage girls and boys. And that as a teacher, it was, you know, frowned upon, let's say. Fran Bonnet, Rocky's mum, let's just say she wasn't and still isn't a fan of Candy's, referring to her as disrespectful and not appreciative. She also didn't hold back when talking about her housekeeping skills. But shortly after meeting, they were pregnant, and as they were both from devoutly religious families, after only five months of courtship, they got married on March 12, 1995, in Medicine Hat. Their son Nathan was born on August 10, 1992, and two daughters, Mika and Taylor, followed shortly after. Candy was always described as somewhat free-spirited, and so her acting and singing and just living life was more of a priority than keeping a spick-and-span God-fearing clean house, and Fran often gave her a peace of mind about that. Rocky stopped teaching, likely due to his sexual charges, and joined a seminary school to become a pastor. So the family moved to Aldergrove, B.C., and things were a bit stormy for the both of them. They were both prone to aggressive and loud fighting. Rocky, of course, said that it was mostly her that was violent, of course. Not so much him. Although over the course of their marriage at times, they would both face charges for domestic battery. 
Candy's mom, Shirley, wasn't a big fan of Rocky either and found him manipulative and controlling. Most of their disagreements were over the raising of their children. Rocky didn't agree with some of Candy's parenting, and he became a bit obsessed over these disagreements of values. In 1998, they moved to Calgary, and that summer, Candy was upset with Rocky for getting into a fight with a landscaper working in the neighborhood where they were living in Aaron Woods. He says that she dragged him inside literally by his ear, humiliating him and causing his ear to bleed. So he says that he left her on October 5th, 1999, you know, for the best interest of his children. He says that after he left, she started to take her anger out on the children, and he felt that he needed to protect them from her. But friends and family of the 30-year-old receptionist and choreographer and singer with the Sweet Adeline's International Alberta Gold Chorus, which boasts on its website, Ordinary Voices Making Extraordinary Music, disagreed. They said of Candy, she had the voice of an angel and she just loves singing. Her friend Tammy Turgeon said of her, she was a wonderful, strong person who tried her very best not to burden others with her problems. Another friend, April Parisu, said she was a sweet person, always ready to listen, and she was such a caring and loving mother to her children. At the time that family court documents had been filed, they had granted Candy and Rocky joint custody, but that they could not communicate with each other except by email. There was also a part of the order that when it came to drop-offs and pickups of the children, they were to ring the doorbell of the other party and then immediately return to their respective vehicle. So you could say that the divorce and custody arrangements were not going particularly well. During this time, Rocky joined a support group for men that we're going to talk about later. Candy instead had moved on from her marriage and was dating a new guy named Jason Dola, who told reporters Candy had a wonderful relationship with her kids. The kids were always very happy and bubbly with her. There were never temper tantrums or misbehaving. It was tough to take those things that said she was abusive. She was very special to me. We had a very promising relationship, and I left I left that last evening with a very good feeling. To find out the next day that she'd been taken away was devastating. She also reportedly told friends often that she was afraid of Rocky and that when he came to her door, she'd never wanted to let him in. During this time in their custody feud, Rocky started to accuse Candy of physical and mental injuries against himself and the children. He taped conversations with her and also clicked in on Candy's chat room conversations on the internet to find out what she was saying about him. He had become convinced that the children were in serious danger from their mother, despite nothing substantial to back that up. He told people that Candy's quickness to anger was out of kilter to what the situation warranted, and it had gotten worse as each child was born. Quote, she had no control or concept how dangerous her actions were. End quote. A receipt from a purchase made by Rocky was found in Candy's car, and her car tires matched tracks that had been left in the snow by where her body was dumped. The Rocky was brought in for questioning by detectives Dean Shaw and Nick Kiska, and he knew right away that he was going down. He also had worn the shoes that matched some footprints left in the snow. So he told them this bullshit story about just wanting to scare her. It was, after all, all her fault she died because she fought him and recognized him and ruined his perfect plan. In order to protect his children, he had in fact come up with this really well thought out plan. He would break into her house one night, restrain her, feed her a bottle of wine to get her nice and drunk, and then scare her by locking her in the bathroom so that she could, quote, experience what the children had experienced under her care. 
That's a quote. And would maybe drop her custody fight with him, you know, for their own protection. And really, you know, what other option was there? He told them that over the years, things escalated to where he was in fear for his life. So, with this stellar plan in his head, he gathered some ropes, restraints, and disguises and walked to her house, just after about 11 p.m. on January 1st, 1999. Candy and her new beau spent New Year's Eve with another friend, Mary Loden, at the pool hall where they had entered a tournament. The next night, with the kids at her former mother-in-law, Franz, her and Jason settled in for an evening of movies on the couch. He left around midnight, and after watching him leave, and knowing that the kids were being watched by his mom, Fran, he broke in, crept up the stairs and into her bedroom where she was sleeping, and jumped on top of her, blindfolded her, restrained her with bindings, oh, but made sure to put terry cloth towels between her skin and the bindings so it didn't leave any marks, proceeded to try and make it sound like there were three different voices in the room, and forced her to start gulping down this wine that he brought and then decided to draw her a bath, you know, because he wanted her to be comfortable as she got drunk. It wasn't because he planned on drowning her or anything. That would just be silly. Then he realized that he had to cut her right hand free so that she could drink the wine, and she managed to get her blindfold off and break free. Rocky claims, She looked at me, said, I know it's you, Rocky, you're going to fucking pay, and then panicked because his kids lost their mother and now might lose their father too if he was arrested. And that is when he conveniently blacked out and only remembers her face turning blue. When he came out of his blackout, he saw himself standing over her lifeless body with a cord wrapped around her neck. He panicked, cleaned up the house, wrapped her body in her duvet cover and wrapped that with some garbage bags and held them onto the duvet with duct tape, put her into the back seat of his car, propped up and drove her out to the Corral Drive-In on 60th and 17th Avenue Southeast, which at the time was still open and operating, as one would do when only thinking of their children. And so he was charged with first-degree murder for the killing of the mother of his three children. And the trial was presided over by Justice Dennis Hart. Rocky claimed that he had PTSD because of all the abuse that he suffered. So because of that, he couldn't intend to murder anyone. So it should just be manslaughter. But when testifying, he did admit to deeply hating Candy. He often cried and was visibly upset when he discussed his children on the stand, but didn't show any emotion when talking about Candy or when shown exhibits of items that were used in the murder. He even held up the very rope that he had used to strangle her and demonstrated how he had done it. He kept up his BS story about only wanting to scare her into treating her kids better. I was having constant images of the children being hurt. I was becoming obsessed with my concern for the children. For some reason, I thought doing something like that would shock her into realizing that she was what she was doing with the kids. I wanted to scare her. I didn't want to hurt her. I lost it. I blacked out. I panicked. The rest of it is basically a blur. I remember standing over her. She's in the tub. I have the rope around her neck applying pressure. I'm not really aware of what I'm doing. I'm just there. The defense, in their infinite wisdom, decided to parade a bunch of witnesses to basically badmouth Candy. Of them, of course, was Fran, Rocky's mom, and his sister. Fran told the court about an incident in April 1998 in which Candy dragged her five-year-old son Nathaniel from the dinner table by the ear for acting up. Quote, she got up, she grabbed him by the ear, and at that moment the little boy knew he was in trouble. The child was in pain, crying, screaming, I'm sorry, mommy, mommy, I'm sorry. 
She had, of course, tried to report her to social services, but they had basically shut her down and didn't do anything. Rocky's sister Deborah said that in 1996, Candy had pulled Nathan up the stairs by his ear and dragging him so that he couldn't get his footing. But the prosecutor asked her if she knew at the time of her murder that Rocky had hated Candy, and she said that no, she had not. Stephen Rayner, who was Rocky's best friend and still a supporter of him on the episode of Investigation that I watched, said, quote, I had to set some boundaries as a friend because that was all he'd talk about. He wasn't socializing. He wasn't sleeping well. Toward the end of the year 2000, he had bags under his eyes. He was stressed. He wasn't able to focus on anyone or anything other than his issues. Forensic psychiatrist Kenneth Hashman testified that he gave too many excuses for the killing of it to have been because of his PTSD. Quote, I put it to you that Mr. Bonnet is in double denial. He either did it to protect his children, and if you don't believe that, he did it because he was mentally ill. When you have two excuses like that, that's a hallmark of malingering. And as we know, malingering is the fancy legal term for liar, liar, pants on fire. I mean, faking it. So he was convicted of first-degree murder. Justice Hart stating, It is the finding of this court that the killing of Candy Bonnet was such a murder. In forcible confinement, in the absence of any legal defense, murder is first-degree. I will be right back after these brief messages. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Shirley took custody of Nathan, the oldest, at eight years old. She had to sell her business to concentrate on raising him, who had been traumatized and essentially orphaned. As part of her victim impact statement, she told a story. One day, Nathaniel and I were at McDonald's, and he said, Grandma, I don't want to turn out to be like my dad. 
Eight years old is not the time to worry if you should kill someone. He feels badly his father and mother will never be there for him. I fear that later years will be more difficult if he wants to know the details. So for some reason, the children were split up. Mika and Taylor went to Candy's sister and Shirley's other daughter, Teresa, and her husband, Frank Gerlecki, who said that in his victim impact statement, Rocky claimed to be thinking of the children, but in reality, he hurt and damaged the children by a selfish act. He was only thinking of himself. He said that the children want to know what they did to cause their dad to be mad at their mother, and if their behavior had been better, maybe their father wouldn't have killed her. Rocky, I asked you, how do you expect me to answer those questions? That their father was a control freak who hated their mummy. You decide when you're old and gray. You look in their eyes and tell them why you killed their mummy. You tell them you did it to protect them. Teresa said, my children are growing up without an aunt, and their children have been robbed of a mother. Rocky not only killed her and robbed her of life, but unilaterally changed the lives of hundreds of people. Candy's dad Clifford broke down on several occasions as he told how he not only lost a daughter, but a friend and a fishing partner, my confidant. We're still affected by the manner of her death, and I expect it will always haunt us. There are many times when I wake up after crying in my sleep. The pain will always be with me. The family was happy with the verdict, Frank saying we were extremely pleased the judge was not fooled by the defendant's trickery in trying to muddy up the waters of justice by his accusatory statements regarding Candy. Now we can go get on with looking after the three children left behind. But they were very hurt by how Candy had been portrayed during the trial. Her friend Diane LeBlanc said it was the most hurtful part of the trial. Candy didn't have the opportunity to stand up and tell the truth. Now, Rocky appealed on the grounds that because of one point, Candy had actually escaped from her bindings and restraints, and that so there was no unlawful confinement at the time that she was killed, and his verdict of guilty for murder was completely unreasonable. However, the appeal court said that was the stupidest thing they'd ever heard. Well, they didn't say those exact words. They were more professional about it. But what they did say was, this argument must be rejected. It ignores the fact that after the victim escaped temporarily, the appellate caught her in a bear hug, carried her into the bathroom, threw her in the bathtub, then used his weight to apply pressure on her neck with the cord that strangled her. The trial judge correctly characterized this series of events as part of a single transaction. Her mom surely discovered that after only eight years behind bars, he was being moved to a minimum security prison in Mission, B.C. He wasn't even eligible for parole yet at this time. By 2018, he had actually been transferred a total of four times in those years to various minimum security prisons. Each time it just opened up the wounds for Shirley again and again. But when he did become eligible for parole, she said, quote, We knew down the road that we would deal with this. I was never one after he was sentenced to say, oh my gosh, now he's got 24 years and so many days. You can't live like that. You don't put it behind you, but you try not to dwell on it because it doesn't make for good mental health. Now they had a new fear. What if he wanted to try and contact his kids? They don't need for him to be in touch with them. They don't need that stress. My daughter's not coming back after 25 years, so I don't understand why he should come back. Shirley revealed that back at the time when Candy was murdered, she had called him to let him know that the police were going to come and talk to him. He chatted with Shirley like nothing was wrong and even ended the call saying, I love you, Mom. 
How can someone do that? And 12 hours prior, he had taken my daughter's life. Shirley had not suspected him at all and had actually dismissed some of the concerns addressed by other family members. As of today, Rocky appears to be out and about and possibly remarried to a relationship and spiritual coach. I'm not sure where he's living, but it looks like he either returned to Medicine Hat or moved out to the Okanagan region. He will, however, remain on parole until he dies. Okay, so now as promised, let's talk about this support group that Rocky had joined. It's called Family of Men, and I first heard about it way back when I was going through my very traumatic divorce, which was marred by legal abuse and false allegations of being a bad mom and blah, 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 blah. And I started to notice that a lot of my ex-husband's documents, which he was self-represented at the time, were referencing this person named Earl Silverman. So I looked him up, and he was the founder of this men's group. At the time, it was really just a lot of blog posts by very angry men that appeared to hate women a lot and gave each other advice on how to get out of child support payments and make false allegations of parental alienation in order to win your children from your spouse. So needless to say, I wasn't a fan of this Earl Silverman at the time. But this group, Family of Men, keeps coming up in my research in Calgary cases where a man murders his ex-wife. So it was time to do a deep dive. And the first thing I discovered was that, well, Earl died by suicide in 2013. And unlike Fran and Rocky, I'm not one to speak ill of the dead unless they're convicted murderers or child molesters. But it turns out I don't have to speak ill of him because he wasn't actually the problem. You see, Earl Silverman had left Montreal after 20 years of marriage to a very abusive woman and moved to Calgary. And after he left, he found that there were a lot of support services for women of abuse, but not for men. And what help there was for a man was more like anger management. So the assumption that men were always the perpetrators of violence and not the victim. So he started Family of Men as a way of supporting men with help getting access to their kids in dealing with situations where they were maybe being harassed or stalked or something like that. Great idea. Also, he was a big advocate for making a shelter for men as well. Another great idea but he wasn't able to get much government funding for this and it was making him rather frustrated. He actually opened the first men's shelter out of his home in 2011, but by the fall of 2013, he had no choice but to sell his house and declare bankruptcy. But while it was open, it did house a total of 20 men during that time. Anyways, he sold the house and told the guy that he was going to move in with family out east, but instead the new owner returned to find him hanging in the garage. He had no family and left behind any money he did have to further his cause. A sad story. And according to their website, which no longer exists, the Family of Men Support Society is working to ensure that the cries of male victims are heard alongside those of women and children who are also victims of abuse, as all victims deserve our support. Our mission is to reduce family violence through community education and the introduction of a formal support system for men. Our goal is to provide immediate and adequate options for men who find themselves at risk of either hurting their partner or being hurt themselves. The society is for men who want to remove themselves from a potentially explosive domestic situation with dignity. It provides a positive form of intervention and help before anyone is hurt and before the children experience violence at home, thereby stopping the cycle of violence. So I 100% support his mission statement. At the time of Rocky's arrest, Earl had said to the media 
it's total disbelief. Everyone here in a lot had a lot of respect for him. He handled our meetings very well. He was very amiable and focused and was a good leader. But there had been a falling out with some other board members with Rocky, and so he was forced out. Earl said, it's unfortunate that someone like this has been cut off from his support system. The most dangerous person you can encounter is one who has nothing to lose. Whether he was in that situation or not, I don't know. Again, Earl, I get you. I support you. I'm with you. Even though I wasn't very happy when I first found out about your group. But here's the thing. After Silverman's death, there was a lot of talk about this men's group, and so much so that McLean's magazine wrote an article examining the controversy over Earl's support group. And this examination did address my initial distaste with this group that I felt and continue to feel. Lots of people weighed in on Silverman's death, but the words of support for him were kind of concerning. One Reddit user wrote, This is what happens when we throw men on the garbage heap. And another one wrote, the vaginocracy has blood on its claws over this. The president of the National Coalition for Men, Harry Crouch, said that Earl had been murdered by the feminized state of Canada, and the editor of A Voice for Men, Paul Ellum, told anyone that would listen that Earl had been the victim of feminism and misandrist bullshit. So, wow. Okay, so in response, a writer for Salon named Mary Williams wrote an article called Feminism Didn't Kill Men's Rights Advocates Earl Silverman. And in the article, she basically said that she understood what Earl was trying to do and that men were also the victims of abuse, but called into question some of the statistics that he often quoted on his blog posts about how prevalent it was. Now, in complete fairness here, her article, in my opinion, was a bit, well, I'll just read part of it to you. In his dogged efforts to help men and to raise public awareness, Silverman worked to remove the stigma that can often prevent men from speaking out because of pride and fear and misunderstanding. Yet where Silverman came up short was in perpetuating the men's rights movement's fiction that there's any gender equality as far as violence and victims. The Calgary Herald recalled in its coverage of his death Silverman's oft-repeated insistence that men are about as likely as women to say they've been the victims of domestic abuse. So, yes, I would not have used the word fiction. I truly believe that men can be victims of domestic abuse. And remember, verbal abuse and legal abuse is an absolute nightmare to endure, and, and it may not take brute strength. So there is that that has no gender bias. But the point of her article is that Earl had been long struggling with depression and some serious issues and then financial problems that had nothing to do with his men's group and the frustrations with women. His frustration in regards to his group were the lack of funding that he was able to get because the government didn't take him seriously and had bigger fish to fry in their opinion, not gender bias in general. But the response to her article was quick, decisive, and harsh, and again, very concerning. A voice for men's writer Paul Ellum quickly came out with a retort article called Mary Williams Killed Earl Silverman, where it was written, I would have predicted the article would find in no way did feminist-driven policies ignoring and burying the reality of male victimization and female perpetration have anything to do with this man's despondency, much less his death. I was not surprised that Williams stood on Earl's carcass, cherry-picking one highly biased source of domestic violence statistics, which were also conflated with sexual assault, to make him look dishonest and or uninformed. 
while ignoring the massive body of evidence that demonstrates he was right on the money that men are just about as likely as women to be the victims of domestic violence. She essentially tells us how feminism did in fact kill Earl Silverman while deflecting the blame to him as just another man with demons. Yes, he did have demons. He had demons that had long plagued him, just as Williams said. The only thing she forgot to mention is that the demons were her and those of her repugnant ilk. Another blogger, Dean Esme, said that it was feminist men, women, and organizations that had killed him. He ended his article with threatening feminists that men's activist groups would be coming for them. Now this Paul Ellum, who I believe is a problem, is actually the founder of A Voice for Men. His sites gets a lot of visitors to it, including more than the Good Men Project and Canadian Association for Equality Combined. According to McLean's, Paul once wrote an article called When Is It Okay to Punch Your Wife? and refers to feminism as a totalitarian, violent, amoral, murderous ideology of sexual apartheid and hatred. He defends his supporters, saying some of the men on the site have been in abusive relationships, have gone through unfair divorces, they've just been savaged by the system. I won't tell them to stop being angry. After one men's rights rally, Paul posted a video online of a woman speaker talking about the shared goals of both feminism and men's rights groups, and she swore when she was interrupted by a group of angry men. The video was was viewed about 100,000 times, and the comments were from the men's rights groups threatening to beat, rape, and murder her. They also put online her personal information, including her home address, and she was sent hundreds of threats of violence and sexual violence. The woman, who obviously doesn't want to be named, said, What's ironic is that most men's rights activists decry that society treats all men like potential rapists. But the first thing they do when a woman speaks out against them is send her rape threats. It was the group Men's Rights Edmonton that launched a campaign called Don't Be That Girl, where they put up posters directed at women that said, just because you regret a one-night stand doesn't mean it wasn't consensual. Now, my opinion, which I realize you didn't ask for, but I'm giving it anyways, is that my issue with men's rights groups isn't what they initially stand for. It's that they quickly devolve into hate groups against women, and I don't fully understand why they attract angry men looking for someone to blame for why life is harder than they expected. Now, there's a man named Mark Harris. He's mentioned in the McLean's article, but he does, it doesn't say what his background is or anything. But he says something that's interesting to me. He's 24 and he says, Maybe it's because girls are brought up to believe that the world is a hard place for women. Boys aren't brought up that way, so women tend to be better prepared to meet the expectations of the world. Now listen, that's just his opinion. Don't shoot the messenger. I have walked through the court system when it comes to divorce and custody. Is there bias? Yes. But it doesn't appear to be gender biased. It's based on who can pay to work the system to their advantage. The whole system is set up to be adversarial, so there are false allegations of abuse on both sides of the gender lines. But there is also truth behind some of it, and I find that the court isn't interested in getting to the bottom of it. They just tend to go with the opinion of the person that tells the most believable story. So as I always say, if you are in fact in an abusive situation, document, document, document. And that was the murder of Candy Anton. I have ranted enough for one day. I'm going to be back again next week with another case. 
In the meantime, do your rate review thing. Thank you again to Shauna and Carrie. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.